Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode... We get into several topics concerning the Orioles and their minor league system, including Gunnar Henderson's first week or so in the major leagues, some promotions that were announced on Monday afternoon as several standout hitters from Delmarva make the jump to Aberdeen. Meanwhile, Joey Ortiz continues his hot second half at AAA Norfolk. We talk about that, his possible role going forward with the Orioles, and we're going to have a special announcement in the middle of the show about something pretty cool coming up next month. That'll be on tonight's episode, but first I'm going to go to Bob because we recently moved our merch store and are soon to be rolling out some new merchandise. Yeah, it's actually already up on the site, thanks to Josh. Um, Yeah, I moved our merchandise store where you can get our shirts and mugs to uh, birdlandstore.com, a new thing Josh Stroke of Section 336 is putting together, was able to get these items these special merchandise items to a a much better price point for people we're not trying to really make much money off of these at all it's more just to have fun with what we're doing here come up with some some cool slogans based off of things michael Elias says he's pretty much our uh our idea man in the in the media we have our old uh raise the floor and elite talent pipeline shirts and mugs available we have our regular on the verge logo and we have two new ones uh, a liftoff shirt and a on the verge we hear shirt. So check it out. I will put the link in the show notes, but it's birdlandstore.com and in the podcast section. Yeah, be sure to check that out. And we'll go over now to Gunnar Henderson. And he made his major league debut last week in Cleveland, made his presence felt pretty much immediately by hitting a home run in his second at bat as part of a two for four performance. Entering Tuesday night's game against Toronto, Henderson was eight for his first 27 at the plate, giving him a 296 hours ago with an 803 OPS. He has moved around the infield playing second base, third base, and shortstop, his natural position, along the way. And while Monday's first game of the doubleheader at second base was a little rough, um, he has looked sharp defensively, otherwise showing off that strong throwing arm that he has from the left side of the infield. So I'll start with Nick. Just your general thoughts on Henderson's first week and what you've seen from him. Strikes out a ton. I don't know. Um, no, I mean, seven games, not a whole lot, but you ran off the numbers there. 296 average, 321 at base percentage, OPS over 800. Like, And the strikeouts, he only struck out six times. So I'm going to throw that out there, 21% strikeout rate, which is 5% lower than his AAA strikeout rate. And 
I know it's a seven game sample size and uh, it's way too small to actually have any major takeaway, but I'm just going to throw that number out there because if you know, you know, but three extra base hits in seven games, I think is uh, pretty decent. And he's not even making like great contact. If you look at some of the baseball savant batted ball data, right? Like there's, you know, the and comparatively speaking to what we know Gunnar Anderson is capable of. Like I think he had just one barreled ball when I looked it up. The average exit velo on balls in play is just it's basically league average. And so I, I think you know that's too much diving into maybe some of those numbers there for seven game sample. But you look at some of those early numbers and the basic eye test and Gunnar Henderson's playing better than I thought he would from the jump. And he's already having a, a pretty big impact, I think. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on him last week because the promotion didn't come until what like midnight that night after we recorded and we were assuming that he was going to be in uh, the big leagues by the time we did our show but um like i might lose a couple people with this analogy because i was thinking about it for for last week's show but i'm gonna go with it because i like it and my mind is totally focused on fantasy football right now with the nfl season starting on thursday but like i am obsessed with like best ball Fantasy football, best ball, right? You draft your team, no trades, no free agency, no nothing. It's your roster is your roster. And I probably spent the last couple of weeks doing like 50 or 60 of these drafts, <laughs> spending way too much money uh, on these drafts. But like, how do you separate your team from everyone else when you're in a field of 25,000 plus people? You get those guys who can give you spike weeks. Like, there's a lot of factors that go into this, but find your later round, your mid round spike week guys who aren't going to be great all year, but every couple of weeks they'll go five, six catches, 120 yards, and two touchdowns. All right. Gunnar Henderson to me is that spike week guy. Like, if the Orioles want to make the playoffs, you had to have Gunnar Henderson on the roster because he's that spike week guy where he's not going to be good every single night, but even if it's just one night a week where he goes three, four at the home run and makes a fantastic defensive play, he's going to win you that game and help put you in a better position to make the playoffs, I think. So, I mean, you know, long-term, it's a different story. I view him differently, but right now, I thought that was the impact he was going to make in the major leagues. And you know, so far, like, we haven't seen that big spike yet, but I think overall, he's been better than, you know, some of these other guys we've seen come up and uh, make their MLB debuts. Yeah, completely agree. I think I'm very happy with the, his first week in the major leagues at just 21 years old, barely. I mean, we saw the 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 period that Adley Rutschman had to go through to get adjusted to the major league speed, the speed of the major league game, just getting comfortable up there. We saw with Julio Rodriguez, Spencer Torkelson still hasn't adjusted almost a full season into uh, his uh, first year in the major leagues, but Gunner, he just looks comfortable out there. He doesn't look overwhelmed. Um, we knew he was a confident guy, you know, nice guy, but just super confident oozes off of him down in AAA. And it's the same thing I feel like in the major leagues and, you know, he's not letting the moment get too big for him. I mean, I thought he'd walk more than 3.6% of the time, but I guess he can work on that with Ryan Fuller and company. But, no, he puts together great at-bats. Like, he's not forcing things. He's not swinging at every pitch. He's – you can just tell, like, once he gets settled in, I think this is going to be just the perfect learning experience going into 2023. I feel like he's going to be able to hit the ground running next year and just, you know – be himself i'm sure we'll have a game or two or a week where it's like okay now we know what this guy can really do but even if he's just a little bit below league average the rest of the way here he's getting valuable experience and and like nick said there's flashes like there's defensive plays that arm is unreal you know he's smart just got those baseball instincts and then clearly he's got ridiculous power so 
just love that he's here. Hopefully he can help the team win some games, but worst case, he's just getting experience to help them win even more next year. Yeah, there's going to be ups and downs over the course of this month, and I think we've seen it to some extent, although the lows really haven't been that low to this point for him. I think that what has really stood out to me, and I'm glad that a lot of Orioles fans are getting to see this because I think that maybe for people who don't follow the minor leagues that closely, it wasn't apparent to them how all-around athletic Henderson is, how good the arm is, how good the reins can be at times um, at shortstop, and how he runs well. And I think it's another thing that's been apparent in these first in this first week of the major league level is just that this is not a slugging left-handed hitter who happens to play shortstop. This is an all-around athlete who can do a lot of good things. And when he is on his best, he looks like one of the best, if not the best player on the field that night. You know, that's not going to happen every single night, you know, for the rest of his career. And it's certainly not going to happen every single night, his first month in the big leagues, but you're seeing flashes of that right now. Yeah. I was going to say, can we also talk about that 89th percentile in sprint speed? Like that's pretty impressive. Like how many singles have we seen him turn into hustle doubles throughout his minor league career? And he actually has 13 career triples in the minor leagues. And even this year, in double A and triple A, he was 22 of 25, if my math is correct there. Um, I'm using fan graphs, so you know they don't just combine it and make it simpler. But um, 22 of 25 stolen base attempts in the upper levels of the minor leagues is pretty good. And it, this is, isn't is my thought. Shout out to Adam Pohl of the Bay Sox. He's made this point, I think, a couple of times. And I 100% agree with it, though, that like, Henderson's speed is probably the most overlooked aspect of his game. And when you combine that with his plate discipline and command of the strike zone, I think you have someone who's going to be a, an impact hitter at the top of your lineup for a long time to come. Like he is going to be a fantastic one-two hitter in this lineup. Yeah, Nick, he just to build off your point to confirm number one, 22 of 25 this season is correct. And on his minor league career, he is 40 for 47 in stolen mm-hmm. base attempts. Yeah, I was just going to say he could easily join Cedric Mullins in that 30-30 club uh, over the next five years. You know, it's, I would never predict it, but certainly possible given the skill set. And he, like you said, he'll take a hustle double. He will take an extra base on the base paths with a single into right center field, something like that. Like he's very smart to go with the, the athleticism that he shows. What do you guys kind of expect to see from him the rest of the way? You know, it, we're kind of waiting to see can the Orioles hang in this wild card chase. I think the expectation is that regardless, he's going to play, you know, more nights than not the rest of the way while staying under that rookie eligibility threshold. Um, but what are you going to be looking for him to do specifically uh, as we wind down the regular season? 129 at-bats. Um, you know, he's going to be just under that limit and get as much experience as possible. I'm not really looking like, oh, he's got to hit five home runs the rest of the way, anything like that. I just want to see him, you know, get – pretty much every day at bats, maybe a day off here and there against a tough lefty, but he just needs his experience. And uh, I think he'll be right around league average at offensively and, and on the base paths and the defense might, might get him up to one more for a short time in the majors. Yeah. I think F- Fangrass is already at like 0.3 war and seven games. Crazy. Uh, I just want to see him like, honestly, I wouldn't mind seeing him struggle a little bit and then come out in a tough game against Boston or New York or Toronto, a division game in late September and break out of that slump in a major way. You know, I want to see a couple 
like I mentioned earlier, I want to see some spike games where you see that potential where he does go three for four with the home run. Uh, and or you know two for four with i'll get greedy then say two home runs have one of those big nights to say like i'm here and i can do it like i want him to have his big day at the plate but i also want to see him struggle a little bit and at the end of the day when we look back at the season stats from this month five weeks i wouldn't be mad at all if he's you know league average guy that's something huge to build off considering he's 21 years old and i remember opening day last year like being super excited to watch that delmarva team you had Jordan Westberg, you had Gunnar Henderson. If I remember correctly, Zach Peak was the starter. Was that opening night or mm-hmm. the second yep. night? Yeah. Um, Zach Peak, we're like, who is Zach Peak? Uh, uh, now we know. But like, Gunnar was a good prospect, right? We knew he was good, but that was not the Gunnar Henderson that we know now. And so that development over this past year and a half has been phenomenal. And so just the fact that he's up here in the major leagues right now as the Baltimore Orioles in 2022 are fighting for a playoff spot, Massive. Yeah, I mean, I remember exactly where I was when he, I think he hit a home run in his first game, correct? Because I was in the hospital with my son for an asthma issue, and I was watching on my phone from the hospital, and that was, like, very exciting. And like you said, Zach Peake, I think there was a rain delay in there. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, and to think 18 months later, here he is, and he's, like, one of the best prospects in baseball, if not the best, and gearing up to – basically be a middle of the order, top of the order hitter uh, for the Orioles in the beginning of next year. So just incredible development. And I think that development is going to continue. Not only is he an athlete, is he smart when it comes to baseball? Uh, I'm sure he's smart otherwise too, but I don't know. And uh, um, he's going to work hard. He's going to be constantly trying to improve. He's not a guy that's going to rest on his laurels. He's confident, but he also is always looking to improve and get better. And we've seen that he's, I think John Mueller has put him as like the, uh, you know, the model student when it comes to the player development system the Orioles have in place. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw him work through that really bad slump at Aberdeen when he first got there last year. Um, And that was one of the most encouraging signs in his development prior to this season was that he was able to work that way out of his slump and then go to Bowie and actually hit the cover off the ball in the championship series against Akron. Um, And I had, you know, expectation he was going to go back to Bowie and play well based off of that experience. But I didn't think he would completely overmatch older competition for the first month, month plus. Then go to AAA and pretty much do the same thing over several months and then meet some major leagues. Yeah, so I fully expect him to be Juan Soto coming into next year and and just getting better from there. (laughs) I mean, at least... Entering 2023, like he is going to be one of, if not the front runner for like rookie of the year 2023 in the American League, right? I mean, you're going to see every single outlet put out their early front runner articles in 10 different versions that they do leading up to the season. And Gunnar Henderson is probably going to be at the top of every single one of those articles. And I think that's exactly what the Orioles want, though. You, you want Gunnar Henderson, Grayson Rodriguez, DL Hall, maybe Jordan Westberg. If he's still around next season, why don't we, we'll, we'll get into Jordan Westberg in this episode. But like that's what the Orioles want. They want as many chances as they can to get that extra draft pick next year. And, you know, Just because we're not going to be picking at the top of the draft doesn't mean the Orioles aren't going to still make things interesting next year for this draft process. Yeah, basically be a more refined version of Bobby Witt, I feel like, coming into next year. But we'll see. See what happens. Um, 
We do have a lot more to look forward to in 2022, despite the limited amount of time left, including what will be the first ever live episode of On the Verge. We're actually going to be recording a show in front of an audience, the three of us in person together for a show, which has never happened before. Uh, We've done an interview in person before, but never done a full show. And the location of that event will be Full Tilt Brewing in Baltimore on Wednesday, October 4th. That will coincide with the Orioles home finale um, or the regular season finale. So be sure to come check that out. And I just now am correcting myself. That is Wednesday, October 5th. So Wednesday, October 5th at Full Tilt Brewing. The Orioles will play the Blues A's that day. We will be there for the game. Then we will go on right after the game to break down the season. So, uh, Bob, I know that we're pretty excited about this. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. I'd love to see a, a good, decent turnout just to get these guys, show them what we can do, show them that we uh, we can pack the house a little bit and come have a beer with us, we'll watch the game, and then you know we'll take your questions like we're doing now, but you can tell us we're wrong straight to our face instead of uh, over the internet. Come on, stop hiding. No, <laughs> it, it'll be fun. I'm really looking forward to it and uh, hope it goes well and we can continue to do more of that kind of thing next year and down the line. For sure. I'm going to have to do some maneuvering uh, to make this happen. But um, yeah, I just, I'm excited to drink the beer. <laughs> no, it'll be cool. It'll be cool. I'm excited to see as many people as possible. Let's pack the place, have a good time and enjoy some good beers while we're at it and uh, wrap up this season. Pretty uh, phenomenal season. And the, it's fun to say that we can wrap up a season that was entertaining at the major league level and not just in the minor leagues. So maybe I can, uh, help bring a few more people around to talk Orioles baseball and nobody's completely written off and in full uh, Ravens mode quite yet. <laughs> and we should have a couple of good guests too. I don't know if we should formally announce them, but you know, if you know the podcast, well, you could probably take a good guess at who, you know, one or two of them might be, but you have to come, come and see who it is for yourself. We'll definitely have more details out over the next month or so. Orioles play the Blues A's that day, Wednesday, October 5th at 4.05. We will go on the air after that. I can also say Full Tilt is a very nice place to visit when you're in Baltimore, having been there myself. So come check it out. Um, And we will have more details on that in the weeks leading up to it. But we got to get into some promotions that happened Monday afternoon as several hitters make the jump from Delmarva to Aberdeen. Judd Fabian made that leap last week, and he is now joined by Max Wagner, Dylan Beavers, Adam Retzback, all 2022 draftees who performed pretty well at Delmarva. And Beavers especially seems to be a guy that is developing quickly in the Orioles system. John Mioli wrote an interesting piece in his newsletter last week about some of the adjustments he has made to his stance and his swing since coming into the Orioles system compared to what he did at Cal this past season. So not terribly surprising to see these players promoted, especially with Aberdeen approaching the championship series next week, but still some pretty well-earned promotions. And I think the Orioles continuing an aggressive push with some of their 2022 draftees that started with Judd Fabian. Yeah, this is uh, shocking to see that those more guys added. Um, Red Spock is interesting because he's a tall catcher. He looks, uh, I love the way he stands in the batter's box and I'm excited to see a little bit more of him because I didn't really spend too much time watching him when he was in Delmarva and he's already gone now. So hopefully we'll, we can get some good camera angles the rest of the way to get a better look at Red Spock, but I'm glad he got promoted. Um, as far as Beavers goes, like that article when Mioli mentioned that he talked to a scout and 
you know, we know John Muley. So this was a, a real life scout, not some anonymous uh, makeup made up scout that others in the journalism field uh, like to use for their articles. Um, and when he talked about, you know, giving Beavers one of the highest grades ever, he's given a prospect in the a first round prospect. That's huge. And Beavers wasn't even our first pick in last year's draft. Um, I love also that the Orioles are already tinkering with him and, and his stance and his setup and everything. And he's finding success OPS well over a thousand in Delmarva. Uh, so clearly he's taking well to instruction. And I mean, the, the sky is the ceiling for Dylan Beavers. Um, and yeah, the other guys too, Judd Fabian, an outfield in the Aberdeen of Judd Fabian, Heston Kerstad and Dylan Beavers is going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be a fun championship series to watch next week. Yeah, completely agree. And Mioli has had just excellent piece after excellent piece about these draftees. I think it was Judd Fabian today. Great read there. Just these guys are coming in and just buying in instantly because they've seen what the guys before them have been able to accomplish. And they're trying to do the same. And you love to see it. And it's definitely a different angle than last year where they kind of they put the ceiling at Delmarva Amherst no matter what. I wouldn't be surprised if Mealy had an awesome piece on Max Wagner coming up soon too, by the way. I don't think he's mentioned him yet. But, uh, yeah, it's just awesome to see. I'm sure they'll be back at Aberdeen to start next year. Maybe Fabian could push to double A Bowie, uh, depending on the outlook they have. But wanted to get into this question from Simkin. Any other reason that then they just want Trimble to finish healthy at Delmarva and get the reps for pushing Beavers Fabian ahead of him? And, yeah, I think it's more about just – Trimble's still recovering from his rehab, getting healthy. He's been playing much better of late as he's getting further away from that surgery or that injury. So, yeah, just let him finish the season in Delmarva. And on a high note, no no reason to get him up there when you've got studs like Kerstad, Beavers, and Fabian uh, playing playing out there for that championship. Yeah, I agree. It's important to consider that you know Beavers, Fabian, and Wagner were playing high-level Division One baseball, which is not the same as professional baseball, but it, it's still more than, you know, Trimble was in that time period recovering from the shoulder injury. And he didn't have a lot of time at Del Marva last year when he went there um, at, during the summer. So I think that it makes sense to leave Trimble in Del Marva for the rest of the year, if that is the plan, and let him get his reps in. Um, and he is starting to really look comfortable at the plate, too. So I think it's a positive opportunity for him to ride, in, ride into the offseason with some momentum and probably be at the top of Aberdeen's lineup next year in center field every night. Yeah, and Wagner, I know we've got a number of followers who really, really love Max Wagner. And I think it it seems like Dylan Beavers and Max Wagner, if you pull Orioles fans outside of Jackson Holiday, of course, because he's the 1-1 one, one pick. But you look at the rest of the draft class, I feel like Max Wagner and Dylan Beavers were two of the favorite pickups by a lot of Orioles fans. And Wagner... I mean, really good numbers. The extra base hit machine so far is six extra base hits in 14 games. That's in the FCL and Delmarva. That's impressive. One base percentage of 409. When I look at him in Delmarva, like I don't imagine him being this huge like power hitter. He seems to me like, and that's bad camera angle, but my view was this is like a smaller guy. Yeah, he's only listed at six feet, 215 pounds. So this is like a smaller guy. You're not expecting a lot. And then he just explodes when he's up there at the plate. Um this is a guy who I think if he can finish this last week in Aberdeen and do something, put up a big championship series, like we talked about Gunner last year and Bowie, if Max Wagner can do that in Aberdeen, uh, 
I think that's going to be huge for his development. And I know someone else asked a question on Twitter. They said, do we see Max Wagner being a fast riser through this system? I responded on Twitter already and said, I mean, he's already in high A, so I imagine, yeah, uh, this is the, like, this is the proof. Uh, 21 years old, a guy who wasn't even a starter on his college team earlier this year is now in high A for the number one farm system in baseball. And, yeah, you've seen what this team can do with polished college hitters, and that's why they're taking them. Just look at Kowser. I mean, obviously, Colton Kowser was a different tier than guys like Max Wagner and even Judd Fabian. But, you know, you see what they can do with these guys that are just already got a lot of experience against good competition. They can get them up to speed, especially when they buy in. You know, if you hit the ball hard, this team has shown that it can get you to lift it a little bit more, do a little bit more damage. Look what they've done with Jordan Westberg, Connor Norby, getting that power out of these quote-unquote doubles hitters. So, yeah, for a guy like Max Wagner who burst onto the scene and just crushed the ball in the ACC, I think very good chance he could speed through this system pretty quickly. And, you know, where are all these guys going to play? I don't know. That's a uh, – I don't get paid to make those decisions, but someone's going to – Someone's going to break through and and be a solid player for either us or another team that helps us out in another way. Well, I think this speaks to the Orioles' approach of going after that guy in the draft who is a fast riser, which Wagner certainly was. He was not really on anybody's radar coming into the season. He explodes as a big year at Clemson. And I think that, you know, in some cases, you know, another team may have passed up on Wagner, wanting to see a little bit more of a sample size, let him fall further in the draft. The Orioles, though – liked what they saw over that season at Clemson, believed they could build off of it, and so far, so good. He's, like Nick said, he's hitting the ball hard. He's getting a lot of extra base hits, and he could finish strong at Aberdeen. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Can I just address this uh, question from AJ? Is Max Wagner going to bypass Kobe Mayo next year? I don't know what you guys think, but it's an easy no for me right now. Kobe Mayo is 20 years old in A Bowie and really starting to hit these past few weeks since coming back healthy from the back injury and he's been hit by a couple pitches that just he's he's had some bad luck as far as getting dinked up here towards the end but I mean Kobe Mayo is further along than Gunnar Henderson was this time last year so if you see the same kind of commitment and development going from this year to next year for Mayo he could easily get to AAA pretty quickly at 21 years old and and just be next year's Gunnar Henderson, who could just rock it up list. So I definitely would not buy, see him bypassing Kobe Mayo at this point. And I feel like Mayo is a guy the team should definitely hang on to right now because his value to this team or any team in baseball is going to be much better this time next year than it is right now. Yeah, nine hits in his last five games in double a so he's clearly healthy settling in uh that home run he hit the other day was like 98 miles an hour right into the fist and he turned on it and did a patented kobe mayo just drive deep bomb to left field it was beautiful i think that was the moment for me where it's like i think it's clicking for kobe mayo in double a that's someone we haven't i think it's good that we address that only because we haven't really talked about him uh too much lately and I, I saw someone mention like, oh, it's good to see Kobe Mayo uh, after he's had a like a really you know struggle. He struggled all season. Like he hasn't. He <laughs> has even a little bit. He hasn't no. at all. He's had a, a fantastic year. That's why he's 21 years old and in double A already. Yeah, I'll just say this. They're both good prospects, but they're different kinds of prospects. And Mayo is just sort of that helium guy that's already in double A. 
he's settling into his own, like Bob and Nick both said, um, really looking comfortable to play now. And I could see him rising quickly next year if he's able to make, you know, I think that, you know, have a season where he doesn't have an injury disruption, which he's now had back-to-back years with, but unrelated injuries, and he's recovered fine from them. If he could have a season where he's in the lineup every day, gets regular at bats, I could see him in AAA by this time next year. Easy. Very easily. Speaking of AAA, we'll talk now about a player who has gotten off to a hot start at AAA, and that is Joey Ortiz. In six games entering Tuesday night's action, Ortiz was 10 for 25 with Norfolk. That's a 400 average with a home run, an OPS of over 1,000, and already uh, a slate of high right real defensive plays at shortstop. Hadn't Joey Ortiz stuff, but still something we've now come to expect in this breakout second half for him that has seen him go from struggling at the plate for a few months at Bowie to tearing apart double-A pitching and now going up to triple-A and doing the same thing. And it's fun to watch because not only is Ortiz one level away from the major leagues now, but he's also bull five eligible this offseason. And I think at this point, he's a lock to be added to the 40-man roster, provided that, you know, the Orioles don't package him in a trade some point, you know, between now and when that deadline is, which is typically in November. So, Nick, I'll start with you on this one. Ortiz has looked really good at Norfolk over the first week. And while it is a small sample size, has it made you think a little bit more about what his role with this organization should be long term? Yeah, because he has not missed a beat since joining Norfolk. And he has just as many extra base hits. If I remember correctly, I didn't write this down. Uh, I believe he has just as many extra base hits as he does strikeouts in his first six games with Norfolk. Uh, just six games, I know that, but that is still uh, pretty awesome to see. And the play he made the other day, that defensive play, showing off the range, going into foul territory, third base side, covering I don't even know how many feet he covered on that play, but one of the best defensive plays we've seen all year. And that's saying a lot considering he's made a number of those plays and Gunnar Henderson has made a number of those plays at shortstop as well. But I just continue to be impressed with how comfortable he looks at the plate and not just him, but so many other guys that we've seen get promoted. Like you see guys that, yeah, they struggle and they take some time to settle in and adjust at the next level. But at the same time, like whatever these checklists look like that the Orioles have, I mean, they they're putting all the right things on the checklist. And so guys like Colton Cowser, he's struggling in AAA right now, but he belongs in AAA, right? Joey Ortiz has just bypassed all of that and looks comfortable with the plate in Norfolk picked up right where he left off in Bowie. And now he's having like this Jordan Westberg introduction to Norfolk, which is fantastic to see. But now I'm thinking like, if this bat is legit as it seems to be, because remember he only played in 202 career games before being promoted to Norfolk, which is absurd. He was drafted in 2019 and only played in 202 games. So no 2020 because nobody had 2020. And then 2021, he only played in like 40 something games. So this is his first full year of pro ball and look where he's at. And so if the bat is legit, which it seems as if it is, then this is an everyday middle infielder in the major leagues. Whether it's with the Orioles or another team, I don't know, but he is showing he very easily be that everyday middle infielder. I don't necessarily see him as like a platoon or a, a, a blanket on the word there. Utility guy. Yeah. <laughs> like at the beginning of the year, that's probably honestly would have been my assessment, but to watch that bat develop, it's changed my mind a little bit. It's changed my mind a lot. 
Um, <laughs> I am going to be heartbroken if he is traded this offseason. Obviously, hey, it might be the right thing just based on the return. But, man, I as much as Matt Blood loves Joey Ortiz, I, I might be like – trying to compete for the number one Joey Ortiz fan over here because, man, watching him make those defensive plays and just go out and crush a home run, a triple, two doubles, like, man, he is so fun to watch play all over. He could be Jorge Mateo without the stolen bases, but with a better bat, and that's interesting. Um, I don't know what it means for Westberg. I don't know what it means for Norby. Like, there's too many guys here, and what some of them are going to have to go. Some of them are probably just not going to be – able to cut it and some of them will just have to be really good for another team. I don't want any of them to leave, but Ortiz might be my favorite of the bunch right now, just at the moment, like give him a shot in spring training to win a job, please. I want, I want to see him in Baltimore, at least break in with this team so I can buy a Jersey. I don't know, <laughs> but I don't want to jinx him like you Neil Diaz, but man, I really love the way Ortiz has played. If one minor adjustment can take him from the way he played before July 1st to the way he's played since, this guy is a keeper. Yeah, and you know, I kind of go back to what Kevin Goldstein used to bring up a lot on his podcast when he was over at Fangraphs. When these kind of questions would come up, it would be, you know, his answer would basically be, you worry about the problem when you have it. Um, and that's kind of how I look at the Orioles' middle infield depth right now with Gunnar Henderson, who I know isn't going anywhere, Jordan Westberg. Connor Norby, Joey Ortiz, uh, Ramon Arias, I would lump in there too, Jorge Mateo, Taryn Babra. This is a good problem to have, and it'll sort itself out. But I think for right now, Ortiz just looks like a really complete player on both sides of the ball. And this is the thing that I really like about his breakout. Since July 1st, which is really when he started to get comfortable with the plate and started to hit, 12 home runs, 639 slugging percentage, with 25 walks to 29 strikeouts. Um, he's still not striking out. He's still drawing a lot of walks, and he's hitting for more power. You know, usually we're, we accept trade-offs there, and you're not seeing that with Ortiz. So I really feel like the the floor with him now looks more and more like a high-division utility player who's going to add value, a ton of value with his defense. And the ceiling looks like a really solid everyday shortstop in the major league level. Yeah, I was going to say, is, is it fair to say that probably outside of Jorge Mateo, is he the best shortstop, defensive shortstop in this entire organization? I, I think I would say yes. Uh, I think I, it's a slam dunk. <laughs> yeah, better than Gutter. I mean, better than Westberg. I think he is the top defender at this position. Uh, I'd probably give the edge to Mateo does some pretty magical things out there. Not going to lie. But like Bob said, Ortiz can be Mateo with a better bat. Um, you know, you're not going to lose too much defensively, but you know, speaking of like a floor of that utility guy, if that is his future role, which very well could be like he's played second, he's played third a little bit. I think he's only got a couple games this year, a couple games last year, but he's played third. When we had Tim Dijon on before the season started, he talked about the defensive versatility of Ortiz and how they were working with him there. He's got the strong arm. I almost wonder. I'm kind of shocked you haven't seen him in the outfield yet, but you have to wonder, would they try him out in the outfield a little bit just to add to the resume, especially if they know, because we know when it's time for him to come up to the major leagues, he's going to have to master another position first. So probably go play left field a little bit. I could see him doing that as well. Uh, And it just adds to that versatility and makes him an even more dangerous weapon out there. It's 
it's it's so awesome to see that nobody believed in this bat three years ago when he was drafted. I don't think you find any report that had anything super positive to say about the bat. And now look at it. That's it's going to carry him to the major leagues. Yeah, you said his his ceiling might be uh, everyday shortstop. I feel like that's his mid range projection at this point. Uh, I feel like his ceiling is an all star caliber guy because you don't need to hit super well to uh, be all star level when your defense is as good as his is. So, yeah, maybe I'm I'm buying too much into the hype here, but I feel like he's fully healthy now and he's just picking up right where he left off, if not even better. Yeah, Nick, I agree with you about his defense, and I like Gunner's defense at shortstop a lot. Um, I'm not someone who necessarily believes that Gunner has to move off a short, but if I had my pick defensively between Ortiz and Henderson, I'm going to take Ortiz. I would take Ortiz over Caden Grenier, who I also think is a very good defensive shortstop. Mateo would have a slight edge for me, but it's not that far of a gap. So Ortiz is a really, really good defensive shortstop. And you know, it's going back to like the possibility of a utility profile. I feel like Mateo has been the first guy that the Orioles have had that they've kind of tried to put in that utility mold that could play shortstop. Um, because Ramona Rios does a lot of things well. Shortstop is not one of them. Um, we all remember Pat Vileka at shortstop and how terrible that was. Um but Ortiz, now you have that guy in your system who could possibly play around at all, every position. And honestly, I think that maybe for next year, if you know if he stays in the organization, maybe the role for him next year is start the season in Norfolk as the everyday shortstop. Like Nick said, move around a little bit too. You're going to play second. You're going to play third. You're going to play left. Maybe we'll just put him out in right field a couple of times. Let's see how the arm looks out there. And then you bring him to the major leagues. He could probably play center too. <laughs> I mean, he's he's got the goods. Let's see what we got in him. Uh, yeah, and I don't think there's a rush to get rid of these guys, even though they're kind of all getting a little cramped up there in AAA, high upper end of the minors. I feel like you could start Westberg on the major league roster, start Ortiz in AAA. If you're going to trade some guys, maybe trade some guys a little bit lower in the organizational depth chart and it's nice to have good depth at waiting in AAA rather than just guys where it's like, Oh no, we need Kelvin Gutierrez. Our one good player got hurt. So yeah, I, I don't think there's a rush to trade all these guys, but at some point, yes, but not right away. You can kind of, hopefully the cream will rise to the crop in the, in your own organization and we'll see what happens. Yeah. I, I still think there are major league pieces that you can move and you can package some of those mid-range guys, those mid-range prospects with the major league pieces to get even better major league talent. So maybe that's the kind of trade we see this offseason. I don't know. But yeah, I do agree. There's definitely no rush, but man, it's it's a lot of fun. And I've mentioned this before. And I'm going to say it again. It's fun to be talking about these guys as you know, they're doing this in Norfolk. Or they're doing this in Bowie. But most of these guys are doing it in Norfolk now. It's not no longer. It's not like last year. We're talking about, man, this 18-year-old down in Delmarva playing really well. Like they're here, they're arriving, and this is it's fun to see this development take place. We put out a call for listener questions before tonight's episode on Twitter and in our Patreon chat, and several questions were about Joey Ortiz, and we tried to cover our bases there with Ortiz in that segment. But we'll now move on to questions that we got, and we'll jump in actually with the Jordan Westberg question because we had multiple variations of this question, which is. 
When is Jordan Westberg getting called up? And if he gets called up this year, what is his role? And I'll let Bob start with this one. Well, I think it's fairly, I'm fairly confident he's not going to get called up this year unless there's an injury that would be totally unfortunate and unforeseen. But yeah, I don't know, man. I think, I think they really like what Westberg can bring. Obviously he can play all the infield positions just like a lot of these guys can. But I think even beyond just the skills at the, at the plate and in the field where he's, He's got power. He's got solid defense. He's going to take walks. He's going to hit for a little bit of average. But I think they just like the intensity and competitiveness he brings in the clubhouse and off the field. So I think there's a good chance he could win a starting job coming into 2023. Maybe you have Gunner at short, Westberg at third, someone at second, or you go Mateo at short, Gunner at third, Westberg at second. I feel like there is a way he could find himself starting for the Baltimore Orioles in the beginning of 2023, or he could be a trade target for a team this offseason for a starting pitcher. Whereas, you know, I would definitely rank Jordan Westberg as a higher caliber prospect than Joey Ortiz. Maybe you can get more for Westberg and you see them a little bit more in line as far as total value. You know, they go about it a little bit different ways, but maybe you feel like you can get more in return for a Westberg and feel like you're not missing much by keeping Ortiz around. So I really feel like I don't know what they're going to do with Jordan Westberg, but I, I would love to see him at least start his career with the Orioles, the team that brought him up. Yeah, the, for me, like this year, Andy Costco kind of threw some cold water on my Westberg hope the other week when he was on. But like, I think that's understandable. Like, should he be on the roster? Yes. And I think if this team wasn't in a playoff chase right now, he probably would have been up. But like, you want Jorge Mateo's glove out there. You want Ramon Arias's bat in the lineup. I think right now, Gunner had to come up. Uh, you you could not keep him in AAA any any longer. You got to bring him up. He can play multiple positions as well. We all know that as bad as Rugnet Odor is, like he's staying in this lineup as long as he's on this roster. So I accepted that a long time ago. And Taryn Vavra is also still apparently, I don't know, you guys confirmed this or not. I believe Taryn Vavra is still on the major league roster. Uh, but if he is, that's just another name. And again, a guy who plays second outfield, right? So if you're bringing Westberg up, where is he going to get the at-bats? And you do have the advantage of the AAA season runs through the end of September. So he's not just going to be sitting around or the season doesn't end next week like Delmarvin Aberdeen or at the end of this week like Delmarvin Aberdeen. And he's just going to go hang out in Sarasota at fall camp. Like he's still playing good AAA baseball through the end of the month. So there's at least that going for him. But I just don't see where he fits in these last month of the year. Yeah, it's going to be hard for him to fit in um, over this little bit of time because – there's just so many options the Orioles already have on the roster. I think it would probably take an injury for it to happen. As far as next year, I'll just stay with the pretense. And honestly, I'll probably stick with this most of the night, which is that anyone that's in the system now is still here until further notice. Um, Westberg probably competes for a starting job or a job in the Orioles infield, where if he's in, he's probably in the lineup most nights, but you're going to see him. Mateo and Henderson move around a little bit. That'd be a pretty slick infield. Jorge Mateo, Jordan Westberg, Gunnar Henderson. Like, I'll take that. Yeah, with Joey Ortiz waiting in the wings in case of emergency. Yeah, I think you could do worse. 
Uh, what do you think about Vivek's question? Who's more likely to be traded this offseason, Jordan Westberg or Ramon Urias? Hmm. It's a tough one. Um, I don't know. It depends on like it depends on the org. Like who do you, who can you match up with? I mean, if it's a team that is ready to compete, I think if it's a playoff bound team, they're going to want Ramon Urias in that lineup. And you can probably get some prospects for him, right? But that's the kind of trade you're going to see for Urias. But Westberg, maybe if you can find a team like, I don't know, what's a team that's not going to be like Detroit or somebody like maybe, I don't know. I see Ramon Urias. Urias would be perfect for a team, like Nick said, that's more retooling than rebuilding. So I think that you could possibly put him in a package for a starting pitcher that maybe has a couple of years left in team team control, and it's about to get a big arbitration raise that the current team doesn't want to pay, but they look and they've got three years of team control with Ramon Arias. That's pretty nice. His defensive metrics over a somewhat limited sample at third base have been pretty good this year. So you can put him in at least two infield positions. So I think that kind of team where they're not in a full-fledged rebuild mode, but they're cost-conscious looking at years of control, is going to want Arias, whereas a team that is rebuilding would target Westberg. Yeah, I think that sounds perfectly reasonable. And uh, I feel like the Orioles have a really flexible option package. I don't know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) They have uh, some flexibility when it comes to putting together offers to acquire a pitcher where you could package a guy like Ramon Urias with a guy like Keegan Aiken and then a prospect for in the 10 to 15, 10 to 20 range and maybe get something pretty good. Same with like Austin Hayes. You could package him. Like these guys aren't like tremendously valuable on their own, but they're still proven major league players that, you know, have proven to have value at the majors. They have years of control relatively cheap for three or four years. And then you package them with the prospects. Maybe you get something like a Pablo Lopez. I don't know. Just someone, Shane Bieber. We've been ringing that bell, but I think Ramon Urias could be a really good guy to trade this offseason. I like the Keegan Aiken package. Ship him to Detroit. I don't know. That's where <laughs> people go to not do anything. Uh, ship him to Detroit. They got some pitching prospects we should save out there because they just they know how to destroy a pitching prospect. Um, Colorado. <laughs> Zach Veen dream is coming true. Here we go. <laughs> Zach Veen for Keegan Aiken and Ramon Urias. I'm done. Yes. Our job is done. <laughs> What prospects who haven't debuted this year have a shot at the 2023 opening day roster beyond the obvious of Grayson Rodriguez? And we got questions there from Adley from MVP committee and O's observations. Uh, I'll let Nick start. All right. Prospects on the opening day 2023 roster outside of Grayson Rodriguez, I'm going to say Jordan Westberg. And I got a sleeper here. I'm going to say Ryan Watson. I think he makes the bullpen. Jordan Westberg is a starting infielder. There's going to be a lot of guys debuting next year, but as far as opening day is concerned, uh, Westberg has a legitimate chance. I know there we talked about Colton Kowser a little bit last week, how fun that would be, and there may be a, a small path there, but uh, I don't know. Ryan Watson is a guy who you're not going to play service time games with, and I think he's already in AAA. He's working at the pen in AAA already, so maybe. Maybe he makes the pen depending on if, especially if, if guys get moved in the offseason at the major league level. I like that. Um, I'll just say, obviously, Gunnar Henderson, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall. Uh, 
Kyle Stowers. Uh, yeah, I think Jordan Westberg could definitely make the opening day roster. How about Colton Kowser? You know, if he gets hot down the stretch here in AAA, has an amazing spring training after, you know, maybe adding a little bit more muscle to add a tiny bit more power to his approach at the plate. Maybe he has a, a baller spring and just starts out in the outfield for the Orioles. Maybe Chris Valmont as a, as a sleeper in the bullpen uh, as a guy that could uh, do some big things in multi-innings. Yeah, I would say that in particular, if you're looking, you know, the players we haven't seen yet, I would say Jordan Westberg, you're probably going to see as long as he's in the organization. Grayson Rodriguez, I think it's definitely in the 2023 opening day rotation. And then I would definitely keep an eye on Watson and Valamont for the bullpen. What I think is interesting about both of them is that Valamont is a starter. Watson was stretched out from a starter as a starter for most of this year before moving, going to Norfolk and basically pitching a relief role there. I do think the Orioles, while I expect them to be better in 2023, there is still going to be that question of how you manage innings early in the year with someone like Tyler Wells, who had an injury this season that cost him time. Grayson Rodriguez, I think he's going to be full go early on, but probably not going to be more than five innings in any of his starts over the first few, over the first month of the season. DL Hall, you know, probably about the same. John Means probably won't be back right away. So you're going to have to find a way to get innings. And I think if you look at what the Orioles have done with Austin Voth and Spencer Watkins this year, that gives you hope that they can make, and even Brian Baker, that gives you hope that they could make Chris Valamont and Ryan Watson guys that could be a part of that solution of how you get the ball from D.L. Hall to Felix Bautista on a night where Hall throws four and two-thirds innings in a cold April game. I wouldn't rule out Drew Rahm for that role either. Um, I feel like, you know, when John Means first came up, he was in the bullpen. He impressed everyone in spring training, was put in the bullpen to start the year, and then the rest is history. Not saying – and I predicted the same thing with Bruce Zimmerman a couple of years ago. But I just feel like Drew Rahm is a guy that could excel – pitching in shorter stints out of the out of the bullpen to start his major league career with the just the repertoire he has and dropping down from the side. I feel like he would give hitters different looks and you know along with Watson and Valmont, just enough, I feel like this spring training is going to be ridiculous in 2023. Like this is going to be a ton of fun. Yep. And Ron will be on the 40 man roster. So got that. Who do you think is the best outfield prospect in the system after Colton Calder? And I'll let Bob start that here. That's yeah, from Buster's uh, <laughs> Oreos on Twitter. <laughs> that is a good question. I'll just run down the candidates. Uh, Heston Kerstad, Dylan Beavers. I'm not counting Kyle Stauer since he made his major league debut and will be graduated by the end of the year. You also have Hudson Haskin. Don't sleep on him. Judd Fabian, John Rhodes. So, again, plenty of prospects to choose from there. For me, it's Dylan Beavers. Um, you know, he was got the the – the high draft pick, the he's you know, he was highly lost the word I'm looking for. He was highly <laughs> considered a great prospect coming into it. And uh um, you know, John Mioli's piece just really sold me on him. I feel like there's a reason he went that high, and the Orioles immediately have already tried to make him better. And I just feel like that's gonna continue. Uh Heston Kerstad's right up there and Judd Fabian making a case as well, but plenty of really solid outfield prospects in this system. 
Yeah, I gotta go Beavers as well. Like you just see the potential there. Hit those at bats. I feel like they were very Colton Cowser esque in some of his Delmarva at bats. Like just being able to take what the pitch pitcher's giving you. I think there's a at bat the other day too that I, I noted that. I mean, he went early attacking the ball. He's looking for the home run, getting beat on some breaking balls, and then he had two strikes, and you could tell he just like sat back and just pushed up the middle for a single. And the whole demeanor changed in the box where he just went in like this full relaxed mode and just guided the ball. It was honestly beautiful to watch. And to me, I, I think that you see the power swing as well. It's like that guy can hit the warehouse with ease. Um, there's no doubt he's going to connect and hit with these. There's so many guys in the system, these left-handed power bats that we're stockpiling. You're like, yeah, he's hitting the warehouse. Uh, Beavers is definitely one of those. Uh, I think if you like Kyle, St- Kyle Stowers and what he brings to the organization – and the type of game he plays, I think by this time next year, you're going to love Dylan Beavers even more than Kyle Stowers. If it all pans out, if his development continues, like we hope it does, I think that could be the case. But honestly, like I would not be shocked if Judd Fabian skyrockets up this next season. And I can see, easily see Fabian being one of those guys that the org really pushes to the national outlets and they start running with this Fabian hype. Super impressive batted ball data. And honestly, I was reading John Miller's article on Fabian today. And like, I just started giggling. I'm pretty sure at one point, like, this is just stupid. The kind of guys that we are bringing to this organization. The just, if you haven't read Mueller's piece about Fabian and what Delmarva hitting coach Brick Ambler had to say about Fabian and his makeup, please go read it. Go subscribe and read it because it's it's astronomical. The the people that that they're bringing into this organization. Yeah, I'll go with Beavers too. I, I just think that that is pretty far along already. He's already checking off a lot of boxes as far as his plate approach, his ability to hit the ball hard. Uh, there seems to be some belief he could stay in center field, and he just turned 21 a few weeks ago. So he's going to, at the worst, be starting in Aberdeen's outfield next year as a 21-year-old. He's already there, so I shouldn't even say at the worst. He'll be in Aberdeen's outfield next year as a 21-year-old. He doesn't turn 22 until August he could very well be in Bowie by then. So this is a guy that's still fairly young, but has some things that where he looks really advanced. I would say that if you want to separate Beaver from Fabian a little bit, is that Fabian is probably more likely to stick in center field. So if the bat really comes together for Fabian next year, that could be the difference maker. But for right now, I like Beavers. Yeah. It's hard to, for me like, Heston Kerstad is now what third, fourth, maybe uh, on my list of, of top outfield prospects. Like he's he's dropping a little, in my opinion, on my own personal list. But uh, that's a good problem to have. Like I, I love the outfield depth. We talk about the shortstop depth a lot, but I love the outfield depth. And you mentioned Hudson Haskin earlier. That's the sleeper that nobody's talking about, and he's going to be the starting center fielder opening day next year in Norfolk. And by the end of the year, could be banging on the door for a major league call up, and no one is talking about him at all this year. Yeah. And speaking of Heston, I feel like should we just transition to that question next with Alex from Patreon who said, what do you think Heston Kerstad's near and long-term future is and what would be a success for him this time next year? Getting to double A Bowie would be a huge, by this time next year would be a huge success. Uh, Honestly, I'm getting, I can't remember if I saw someone else say this online on Twitter first. But I'm pretty sure that's where I saw it first. And I apologize for not being able to credit where I saw this from. But I saw this comment. I was like, I actually like this. And I could definitely see this. Like, 
Heston Kershaw eventually move into first base. And now that's like stuck in my mind. The potential guy you move, especially as he moves up to Bowie, you try him at first base a little bit more and see what happens. But it, it's, he's been hitting a little better in Aberdeen, but I was hoping to get a little bit more out of Aberdeen. So just finish the year healthy, come out next year, end the year in Bowie, and then let's reevaluate and talk then. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that, you know, it's definitely, there's definitely been some struggles with him at Aberdeen. And I think that if he does have to repeat there to start next year, it's not the worst thing in the world. He needs a full healthy season, which he has not had yet. So number one, get that. That would be a success. Number two, to get to Bowie, like Nick said, and to be there and look like that kind of guy that you can already pencil into the AAA lineup next year. As for the defense question, I'll let time play out with that. From the little bit I have seen of Kerstad's defense in the outfield, I don't see any problems with it. But I know he did play a little bit of first base at Arkansas, and I, I certainly wouldn't rule out the possibility of him moving to first. But I don't think there's any glaring limitations that suggest they should absolutely move him to first. I don't think it's a, a must. Yeah, I could see that. Some guys are going to have to move to first because – there's a lot of infield, a lot of outfield, not a lot of first base prospects in the system. So, uh, yeah, I think I think he'll start next year in Bowie, no matter what. I think he's going to start in Double A, um, even though he struggled a bit in Aberdeen. No one wants to be stuck in Aberdeen longer than uh, than they have to. Uh, Connor Gillespie's just stuck in like hell <laughs> for his entire professional career, but. Um, I think he'll start in Bowie, and I think it'll be a success if he earns his way to AAA by the time uh, 2023 ends, because then he's looking at a 2024 Major League debut as long as everything goes okay. And uh, maybe this is a nice transition to the next question, Zach. Yeah, we've had a couple of questions with this. Um, Vivek now live, and then Hunter Davis on Twitter. As far as who goes to the Arizona Fall League, and I'm going to take the route that is boring, but I think going to be accurate in the end, which is just to guess the types of players that you're going to see. You're going to see a fast riser go there, kind of in the Kyle Stowers mold last year. Look for someone who missed time due to injury. Uh, a few guys fit that mold last year, Greg Collin being one of them, Yusniel Diaz being the other. And I suspect there's going to be one or two under-the-radar relief prospects who maybe have some really good pits data but didn't have great baseline stats last year, this past season. So just if you when you see the list, that's kind of what I expect. I don't expect it to be, you know, which of the five top 10, top 15 prospects need more playing time. I'm looking at specific types of players, and that's kind of what I'm seeing. Yeah, I, I got some names, and they kind of fit that same mold. Like uh, – Last year, we saw a lot of relievers who missed time and some okay bats, but not like huge bats. We saw Greg Cullen go to the AFL last year and Yusniel Diaz, obviously. But I would not be shocked to see like Colton Kowser. I would like to see Colton Kowser. I'll say that. I would like to see Colton Kowser go and follow that Kyle Stiles path from last year, play at three levels, and then end with one more challenge. Let's see. You're the first round draft pick. You've played so well this year. Let's really challenge you out there in the Arizona Fall League. Um as far as like pitchers go, I think Antonio Velez, like we heard a lot after that trade was made that from Michael Elias who said Velez is close to the major leagues. And then he really hasn't pitched at all this year because he's been so hurt. 
so I could see Velez going out there to the Arizona Fall League, and then some other names I threw out there. I went. You're definitely going to see at least two relievers. So I mentioned this, you know, Tyler Birch, Easton Lucas, Nolan Hoffman trio. At least one of those guys, maybe two. We know the org was pretty high on Tyler Birch coming into the season, and he seemed to really struggle for much of the year. Turned it around in August, but then maybe he made some adjustments. And so you send him out to Arizona Fall League to keep working through those adjustments. Uh, Easton Lucas, you know, I don't. He was traded for Jonathan Villar, who we know the org was not a huge fan of at the end there. Uh, so it's not like they're necessarily super high on Lucas, but he's shown a lot of flashes this year. I wouldn't mind seeing him in the or Arizona Fall League. And then Nolan Hoffman, just because he was picked up in the Rule 5 draft last year. And I know a lot of very knowledgeable Mariners fans were pretty upset to see Hoffman go because they love the data behind him. They love who what he brought to the organization. And he's only pitched 20 innings this year in Bowie and pitched really well in those 20 innings. So... I wouldn't mind seeing what he's got out there in Arizona either. Yeah, those are good picks. I, uh, I'm i trying to get more specific. I'm, I'm going to say Grayson Rodriguez could go out there just because you want to build those innings up a little bit more. That would be an exciting one, probably easily the best prospect that could be at the Arizona Fall League. Um, you know, Heston Kerr said you could see him or you could see him just be like, okay, we're just glad he finished the season healthy. Let's – Let's go into a normal offseason or that maybe they want to get him a little more experience. Um, same goes for Reed Trimble. I feel like that's a guy who came in later in the season. Either you're going to be satisfied with what he showed and then just like shut it down, let him rest and build him up for a normal offseason. Or maybe they want to give him a little bit extended season. I think Antonio Velez and what was I going to say? Noah Denoyer would be good. Denoyer missed some time. And especially if you want him to be a starting pitching prospect next year, I think maybe you send him out there. And I feel like he could be a guy that really opens up some eyes. Um, Nolan Hoffman is a great choice. And then, you know, it seems like they always send a catcher. So why not Maverick Hanley? He missed a little bit of time here and there throughout the season. And, you know, he's maybe you want to get an extra look before you decide if you want to put him on the 40-man roster or not. So you get a little little extra evaluation time there. But I think it'll be a, a decent group of names, maybe a little bit more high profile than we're used to in the last couple of years. I like the uh, Ignacio comment there, Ignacio Feliz. That would be pretty cool. I, I would yeah. be interested to see him go out there as well. That would be cool, and I would be very happy to see Denoyer out there. Um, I think he's had an excellent year, and probably a pitcher of the year candidate this rate, probably protect, candidate to get protected as a Rule 5, from the Rule 5 draft. Um, so if Arizona Fall League stint would be fitting for him. Uh, we had this question a couple of times, I think, which is which non-top 30 prospects made the biggest impression on you this year and which one has the most upside heading into 2023? I will let Bob start with this one. Frederick Ben-Cosme, Frederick Ben-Cosme, Frederick Ben-Cosme <laughs> with a bullet. Um, definitely the answer to the second one, who I think has the most upside, I feel like. He just exploded onto the scene actually last year, but just extended that this year by skipping the FCL and just lighting Loe Delmarva on fire. You know, he struggled a little bit in Aberdeen, but that's to be expected for someone his age and experience level against that level of competition in that type of offensive environment. Let's see who else. Juan De Los Santos was a guy who came on our radar this year. Aaron Estrada. I won't steal too many names, but Davy Cruz, plenty of guys especially these international guys are starting to trickle up and uh, make their presence more known. And I think that's just going to continue over the next few years. Uh, this is my kind of question. I love this question. 
I'm going to go the guy outside the R top 30 who impressed me the most. I couldn't pick just one. So I'm going to go with Noah DeNoyer and Justin Armbruster. I think just pitchers, right? Huge strikeout numbers, very low walk numbers, fantastic outings in double A. Uh, I think they begin next year in triple A. I'm excited to see the work they put in the offseason and see what they look like in triple A to begin next year. But like I honestly, I want to make some type of just an org guy t-shirt and wear it to Camden Yards when Justin Armbruster makes his MLB debut. Take a picture and send it to Keith Law and just spam his inbox uh, because that's going to be an awesome moment. But I'm anxious to see both those guys next year. But I went a different route with the non-top 30 guy who I think has one of the higher ceilings. I think it's Davey Cruz just because his stuff from the left side is so impressive. And he's only 18 years old. So if things start clicking for him next year, I know the walks were pretty extreme. Uh, it's almost like a little DL Hall light uh, with Davy Cruz, but he's 18. And if things can start to click for Cruz, he's going to be a 19-year-old by the end of next year in Aberdeen's rotation and firmly a top 30 prospect. That, that could be his ceiling next year, which is awesome to see. I think Baseball America already had him in their top 30, but he got bumped after the draft. So it's, that's the name I'm highlighting, uh, pretty, watching pretty closely next year. Yeah, those are definitely some good shout-outs. Like the Juan Rojas is another guy I feel like acquired in the Twins trade, and uh, Isaac De Leon. Just I keep thinking about guys. There's so many the systems so deep that we we could just rattle off names. I feel like for 20 minutes straight here. Yeah, I went with Daryl Hernandez for this pick. He was outside of our top 30 preseason list. He's inside of our top 30 now, but he was outside the top 30 before this season. I think his stock has risen considerably this year. And when I really thought about it, I think he's also the answer to the second part of that question, which is, you know, who seems to have the highest ceiling going into next year because he's doing all the things he's typically done well, especially in the field and with his speed. And he's now hitting for power. He's hitting for more power than he has at any point in his career. He's still really young. He's now in Bowie's infield. I feel like he's going to be a guy that you're going to be hearing a lot more about going into 2023 as top 15, top 20 material, probably would be top 10 in half the farm systems in the game. So definitely Hernandez for me, although you both mentioned some great names. Um, So this is an interesting question from Vivek, uh, which came in before the show. How has an improved major league product affected the way you watch the minor league product? And I'll let Nick uh, take this one first. Uh, there's a major league product. Uh, no. Um, yeah, like I'm, this is also a good question that made me think a little bit, but like, I'm typically pretty, you know, patient when it comes to prospects, right? I hate comps with a passion because I think every player is so unique and they do things in their own way, which means they're on their own timeline. So development may take longer with some guys. It never comes with most guys, but less time for others. Like, I didn't jump off the using Diaz bandwagon until like this year. So that's just how you know, I'm willing to give these guys opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But I found myself this year, after seeing what this major league club is doing, I found myself kind of, you know, I don't know, holding these guys in much higher regard this year and hold, having the bar, setting the bar much higher as I watch the minor league product, like knowing more about what the organization values with guys at different positions if I don't see it, like I find myself paying a lot less attention to certain players or just not paying attention at all. There are a few guys who this time last year, I was dreaming about what they could do in the major leagues. And this year, at this point right now, I'm not even watching much of their games this year, 
right? Um, so I, I won't name any names there, but um, you know, this is a, an example of seeing things that are working, like the Austin Voth, the Spencer Watkins, the sweeper movement that's taking place at the major league level. Now I'm saying, all right, what guys are doing this at the minor league level? Brendan Hannafy the other night, I watched him do that, throwing the sweeper to righties, throwing the sweeper to lefties. It was working. He looked strong and confident with that pitch. Just an arm booster slider looks much better this year. So those are things that I'm picking up on, and it's helping me watch the minor league game in a much better way, a more entertaining way. I think you know, I'm you know, able to move guys up and down. You know, my rankings. I, I'm not the spreadsheet guy like Bob. I use actual like <laughs> pencil and paper still. So I'm like literally circling names and literally moving guys up uh, my rankings here by hand. But it's fun to now have a better idea of what the organization is looking for. And I can look for that in when I'm watching these minor league games. It's made it it's made it me a kind of bit more cold hearted personally when I'm watching these games, but it's made it a lot more fun as well. Yeah, so it didn't really change anything for me. I'm I'm sick in the head. Mm-hmm. I would I'm the guy that's sitting on the couch watching the Orioles game, even 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, with uh, my phone in my lap, trying to watch as much minor league baseball as possible at the same time. Uh, that's still the case. Uh, I'm either tracking it, paying attention to it, or watching it every chance I can get. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely more enjoyable <laughs> to watch. I'm not like just going through the motions of, oh, yeah, we lost 10 to 3 again. <laughs> but uh, it's been fun, but hasn't really changed the way I watch this year. Yeah, I think that it really doesn't, like, on a game-to-game basis, it might not change the way I watch anything. But I like to think that I know now what the Orioles – coaching staff can do with uh, certain players, you know, whether it's Austin Voth and Spencer Watkins uh, being successful as they've been this year, or Adley Rutzman after a little bit of a slump to start off at the major league level, looking so well adjusted on both sides of the ball um, that you start to feel like you can put the questions behind you of this guy's going to get to the major leagues and they're not going to be able to fix this. Because you know that if Justin Armbruster gets up there and he's already got a good slider, they'll find a way to make that work for him or they'll find a way to probably make it even a little bit better. And this goes back to something that I've talked about a few times on here, which is, and something that I'd like to take a deeper dive into in the offseason, which is rebuilds that aren't working or haven't worked. And the one that I would pick on routinely before this season was the Phillies. Because homegrown players would get to Philadelphia and they wouldn't play well. And that it was always kind of in the back of my mind with the Orioles, which is, you know, what if, what if Adley Rutzman just doesn't click the way we think he's going to? Or what if, you know, Grayson Rodriguez just kind of becomes a, you know, the mid-rotation guy? I, I don't really have that concern anymore. I, I can kind of feel like, okay, this is a development. This is a staff in place with Chris Holt as a pitching coach. Uh, Ryan Fuller, Matt Borg, Salty's hitting coach that have ideas for how to get the most out of these guys. And they can not only make the player development, you know, the players that are coming up through the minor leagues better, but they can take even the Anthony Santander's, Austin Vos, Spencer Watkins of the world and make them better. We've had a lot of people come on the show and talk about how over and over again, from Michael Elias to Matt Blood to coaches themselves and players themselves all say the same thing, right? That cookie cutter response of, we're one organization, right? It's communication is taking place at all levels. Just because you leave Bowie doesn't mean the Bowie coaches are done with you, right? They're still following. They're still texting you. They're still calling you. They're still talking to those guys. 
but it's we're seeing that like it's not just talk like we're seeing that in action i mentioned earlier in the show that uh, a lot of these guys that get promoted from minor league level to minor league level aren't having those huge adjustment periods they're looking just as comfortable as they did the previous level and now we're seeing adley look at what he, he's become the best catcher in major league baseball gunner henderson is off to a hot start we talked about that at the beginning of the episode that's because it's it's a singular message across this entire organization, and it's it's so much fun to watch play out. We we'll go now to another question from Vivek: Who from the trade deadline of the six prospects the Orioles acquired has impressed you the most so far? Who has the highest ceiling and the safest floor? Start with Bob. I will actually say that Chase McDermott has impressed me the most so far, just because. The stuff is better than I expected just watching it. Like you can see the upside there. Just we've talked about it before the way his fastball moves and the breaking pitches are great and they can teach him a change up. I feel like there is definitely at least a high powered relief arm there at bare minimum. But as far as the rest of the question, I would say highest ceiling would have to be Seth Johnson. Assuming he comes back healthy from his Tommy John surgery, he was a top prospect in an incredible organization like the Rays for a reason. And I think if that development picks up where it left off, then he could easily be a mid-rotation starter. And safest floor, I would say Cade Povich. I mean, he's going to get to the majors at this point. He's rough outing tonight as we're recording this, but he's very impressive in his own right. Could have easily been the answer to most impressive of these guys. And I just feel like he's at least going to be a back-of-the-rotation starter when all is said and done. Yeah, not the best night for Cade Povich when my answer to this question is Cade Povich, Cade Povich, and Cade Povich, to be honest. Um, five innings in each of his first two double-A starts, 13 strikeouts to four walks. Even when he gave up five runs that second outing, he struck out seven. And then the last start, he goes six innings, gives up just one run, one walk, six strikeouts against a really good Erie team. He's 22-year-old lefty with just loads of projection left in that body. And I think if if you're not excited about Cade Povich and his potential, like I can't help you like just stop listening because you, you're not, nothing's going to get you excited in this organization. I think certainly the highest ceiling, but I even say the safest floor. Like I think it's Povich because he's got good velo. We know he's got the slider. He's got good stuff and good makeup. And so I think he could be like what we were hoping Kevin Smith was going to be this year and a good lefty option out of the bullpen. Doesn't walk very many guys at all. Strikeouts are good. So I think that floor could be pretty high as well. And the ceiling, he's a, a major league starter, uh, no doubt, for his ceiling. McDermott's a fine option, and I really like McDermott as well. Like My mind is just focusing on like the negatives. If I'm thinking about the negatives, what if that control just never comes and he that prevents him from reaching the major leagues? I don't see that issue with Povich, which is why I'm going Povich across the board. And I say Povich across the board because, honestly, I completely forgot about Seth Johnson when I was – thinking about this question <laughs> yeah Seth Johnson probably is the answer to the question of who has the highest ceiling I don't know the Orioles would have been able to get Johnson in the Mancini trade if he hadn't been hurt nope. um so that is probably the correct answer however I would say based off of what I've seen so far from the players that are on the field I would agree with Nick um it is Cade Povitz as the best prospect and it's Cade Povitz as the highest ceiling and or yeah the highest ceiling and the highest floor because there is definite mid-rotation starter vibes with him, especially with the velo spike that we've seen this year. However, I think he's got breaking stuff that plays well to both hitters, which has been Kevin Smith's problem. He has secondaries that are going to play well to hitters on both sides of the plate. 
and I think could be successful in a relief role if it comes to that. But I think all eyes right now are on developing him as a starter, as they should be. Um, Yanni or Cano, Vivek just uh, asked about that one. Cano's looked good of late. Um, I just wouldn't put him as the highest ceiling or the highest floor. I'm sticking with my prediction, though. I think he makes a pretty big impact in the bullpen next year. That'd be my first. We like predictions. That's my first prediction for uh, 2023. And if he might have the highest floor because he's in the major leagues right now, he was called up today. So he's there, man. Yeah. um, When you throw that, you know, when you throw mid to upper 90s from that arm angle, that kind of sidearm angle that Cano has, pretty interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. If he can just keep the walks down. I think that he will develop pretty nicely in the Orioles' bullpen. Uh, so we'll go now with this one from David in Patreon. Now that Braddis is off the prospect list and Ballman is either off or close to off, do a new segment called The Cupboard is Bare and list the five pitchers in the system behind Hall and Grayson Rodriguez and say they're likely MLB, they're likely MLB roles. So probably not doing this segment every week, but... <laughs> We'll uh, go ahead and do that for now, and I'll just put five names out there because I think that we would probably agree that these are the best arms when you get beyond that group that are still prospect eligible. We won't include Ballman. Um, no particular order, Cade Povitz, Drew Rom, Gene Pento. Who would the two others be for you guys? I had Seth Johnson and Chase McDermott. Yeah. Yeah, same. I yes, had the I same. Had, so. But I actually do – I did take the time to rank every single position. I have 35 starting pitching prospects ranked. <laughs> um, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, Seth Johnson, Cade Povich, Drew Rahm, Chase McDermott, Gene Pinto, Carter Baumler, Chris Valmont, Carlos Tavera, my top 10 starting pitching prospects. Yeah, it's – Baumler definitely has the ceiling there. Yeah. The What's happened this year, though, concerns me a lot. Uh, and we don't have you know the firm public answer yet about what's going on, but he looked so good when he was out there. But for him to be put back on the aisle in this the rest of the year, it is concerning. I just think top five, like Seth Johnson, you, you mentioned the ceiling earlier with him. That's certainly there. It's going to be hard to wait until 2024 to watch him pitch, but Rom, I could see him being a major league starter. I view him as a major league starter right now. And he's up in AAA, not walking guys. Strikeouts are up. He's pitching extremely well in his first three, four starts with AAA, which only affirms that my opinion there of him. We just talked about Povich. Pinto, I think some people might look at Pinto's numbers and be a little bit concerned, but we've mentioned this a couple of times. He's so young for the level, and he's still had a, a great year in terms of like strikeout rate. And it's had some huge outings for Aberdeen this year. So I still see a rotation potential for Gene Pinto and McDermott. Yeah, that this is a guy who, same thing, potential starter. At worst, you see a pretty dominant fastball, huge curveball reliever uh, out of the pen. So, and like this doesn't include, I love Valamont. I'm glad he's pitching well in AAA now. And, you know, Zach Peak, that's a name we didn't mention. I want to put him in my top five. But again, the Tommy John surgery, Kyle Branovich and his Tommy John surgery, that hurts as well. But, Coverage is certainly, certainly not bare, no matter which writers. And I'm going to stop talking because I'm going to get us in trouble. <laughs> Noah DeNoyer, Ryan Watson, Davey Cruz, Brandon Young, if he's still yeah. alive. Um, Garrett Stallings, yeah. potentially. I mean, we got we go deep. Peter Van Loon, Wanda Los Santos, 
then you get down in the lower minors and guys like Zach Showalter, who we just drafted, and yeah, not bare. Yeah, Brandon Young hurts a lot because that's concerning. I don't, I don't even know if we got official word about his injury. He just never came back this year. Yeah, that was a guy we were all very high on coming into this year. I, I could see Rom and Povitz developing into potential starters. I feel like a lot of people are still sleeping on Drew Rom for reasons that I can't quite understand. The fastball velocity isn't up consistently, but he can ramp it up there when he has to. He has good secondaries. He locates his fastball really well. Um, the the guy's probably going to be in the major league rotation by this time next year. Povitz may have better pure stuff. I see him as a future starter. McDermott, um, there's risk there, but there's possible reward. Pinto, I'll just throw this out there. I think he overall, on the balance, he has had a really good season. He has been so streaky with the walks, though. That has been the big issue is that it feels like when he'll have outings where the command just gets away from him. And we all know what we love about Team Pinto. It's how quickly he works and how everything looks like it's Game 7 of the World Series. <laughs> but I think that there are times with him where it's like, if they could just find a way to dial it back a little bit, that might help the walks issue. Because such as it is, it's kind of come in spurts. Like, he barely walked anybody in the month of August. Yeah. Um, but in July, it was a different story. I almost wonder if you just say, all right, next year you're starting in buoy and you're the late inning guy, go out there and pitch like it is game seven of the World Series four and three nights a week and just give it your all in the ninth inning of these games. And he's in the major leagues in 2024. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. hate that at all either. The, he's got that floor to, to bounce off of if the rotation, he doesn't end up as a starting rotation prospect. Yeah, and he gets a ton of ground balls. Like if he could be just like a, you know, go full, full bore for one time through a lineup, could be a very valuable guy. And maybe if our October 5th event goes well, Full Tilt will have us back for the Team Pinto debut That's right. uh, viewing party when the time comes. Uh, <laughs> we'll go now to our final segment of the night where we shout out players outside of our top 30, whether it's for a good week, a good game, something interesting in our stat line we want to take note of. And I'm going to start with Bob, who has one of the players that is making the jump from Delmarva to Aberdeen, mentioned his uh, picks this week. Yeah, to be to be fair and honest, I saw who you guys picked, and I figured I'd go with the theme. Um, we we each picked a catcher for our hitter of the week, and I didn't really find anyone better. But yeah, Adam Retzback is the guy for me. Um, he had a good week, you know. He he's performed pretty well. Obviously, being a catcher, he's not playing every day behind the plate, especially. But he had a 170 WRC plus in FCL in 11 plate appearances, but. He also a 127 WRC plus in 43 plate appearances for Delmarva. He's walking. What is it with catchers and walk rates with this draft class? Silas Ardoin like walked a million times. Rhett's back at a 27% walk rate in FCL and 23% in Delmarva. So yeah, be nice to see what he can do. Um, Aberdeen got rained out on Tuesday night, but doubleheader tomorrow. So we'll see. He'll probably play at least one of those games and I hope he walks a couple times. And as for my pitcher, I went with Nolan Hoffman, who has been really good since coming off of the injured list, you know, the minor league rule five draft guy that we hyped up, hyped up a little bit with the sidearm delivery, got off to a rocky start, rebounded, got hurt. But since he's come back, he's pitched eight scoreless innings with nine strikeouts and only two walks and only five hits allowed. So 
he's he's been great. So hopefully, you know, maybe he gets up to AAA to end the year or just at least starts there next year and could be another option out of the bullpen. Uh, my guy, like Bob mentioned, we all went catchers here. So my hitter is Ramon Rodriguez, now in Norfolk, which I also just looked at Norfolk's score, and they're in Memphis, so you can assume what's happening in that game. Um, Brett Cumberland went on the IL. Jacob Nottingham went on the IL last week. Anthony Bemboom went on the IL like two weeks ago. So Rodriguez kind of got pushed up there because there was really no one else. Um, he spent all year in Aberdeen and has hit kind of well. Like in his two games in Norfolk, though, he went six for eight with a home run, four RBIs in two games. Didn't strike out once. We know a lot of the pitchers in the system love throwing to Rodriguez. He's only 23. He's got a strikeout rate of 12% in Aberdeen this year. He was a nice minor league pickup uh, last year. The Orioles signed just before the beginning of last season. Came over from the Dodgers. Fun name to follow, for sure. Uh, And um, AFL catcher last year. And my pitcher, I'm going, my guy, Brendan Hanafee, because he's back. I mentioned he's got the sweeper now. He's commanding the sinker in the top of the zone. He looks strong and confident out there on the mound after not pitching since August of 2019. And despite all that missed time, like, John Mioli, when we had him on talking about his top 30 list for Baseball America, he had Hanafi just outside the top 30 after feedback from the organization. So the team is still high on him. He's healthy. If you've forgotten about him already, come back on the train. He's here. He threw four scoreless last week, one hit, no runs, uh, didn't walk anybody, three strikeouts, his best outing since his return. So welcome back, Brennan. Yeah, sticking with the catcher's theme, um, my pick was Silas Ardwan. Back on September 2nd, had what probably has been his best game or one of his best games at the plate to this point. Three for four with three RBIs at Fredericksburg for the Sewerbirds. He has walked 14 times in 59 plate appearances across 13 games between uh, low A and the FCL since being drafted by the Orioles earlier this summer. The bat has been coming along a little bit. If you look at the stretch from September 2nd and September 3rd, he went four for eight at the plate picked up a double, three RBIs. So maybe with uh, in these final weeks, we'll start to see the bat come along with the on-base percentage and the walk numbers, which have been excellent since he got into the Orioles system. And my pitcher this week is Chris Valamont. I feel like Valamont we haven't talked about as much since his promotion in Norfolk because the results, for the most part, have been more up and down than they were at Bowie. However, he was excellent on September 4th. That was Sunday, going five innings, Striking out five, walking run, uh, walking one, not allowing a run on four hits and a win over Lehigh Valley. And across his last three outings, Valamont has looked pretty sharp on the mound. In that span, he's thrown 11 frames, struck out nine batters, and walked just one. Valamont, the big issue for him before he joined the Orioles system, he was with the Twins, was walks. High walk rates each of the last two seasons at Double A Wichita and the Twins system. He dropped those numbers drastically when he got to Bowie, got the promotion to Norfolk, and even through his struggles, the walk rate has stayed down. Now, the ground ball rate dropped significantly at AAA. The fly ball rate went up. That could explain part of the issue that he's had. But still, 3.69 FIP and a 4.93 XFIP are lower than the 5.36 ERA that he has posted for the Tides this season. And he's managed to keep the walks down. So I'm still... Pretty hopeful that Valamont could be, you know, uh, a solution for the Orioles at some point in 2023. And who knows if they need pitching help at some point between now and the end of the season, he's already on the 40 man roster. So 
don't rule out a possible surprise debut from him. That'll do it for our show this week. We've covered a lot of ground going from Gunnar Henderson to our picks outside the top 30. We will be back next week with a look at Delmarva's season, which will be in the books. And we'll also probably get into the upcoming championship series for the Aberdeen Ironbirds, which will kick off next week. Look for that and more. In the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest coverage on the Orioles, Ravens, college sports, and more. While you're there, hop on the message board and join the discussion with fellow readers of the site as well as contributors. And follow us on Twitter at PSL and the Birds. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Sveden, and you've been listening to On the Birds.